Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here with Bill Padalo back on the Neil Garfield Show. Today is Thursday, June 6, 2019. And as always, I am broadcasting live, in this case from Southern California. And Neil will be back next week. And as I Remind listeners from time to time, typically Neil and I alternate weeks on his show. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, the topics for discussion on today's show, there are two main topics, and I presented them in the pre-show format that we would be discussing this Massachusetts case of Thompson versus Chase, and then would be up uh, this issue of real estate brokers and related to that mortgage servicers getting deep into the fray of litigation, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure matters here in California, where they're essentially standing in for the so-called and uh, arguably uh, extant uh, holder in interest, the purported uh, creditors, so to speak. So we're going to discuss that that piece first. And Bill has very interesting insights related to that whole topic. And in fact, how you can almost see a kind of uh, arguably a legal referral fee situation and implicating the uh, Real Estate Settlement and Procedures Act, that is RESPA, that a lot of our listeners are familiar with. Uh, so, Bill, why don't you take t- take it from there? And I, I know that uh, UD case that you were involved in San Diego, you've got some, I believe, interesting insights related to that and how it relates to this RESPA issue. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Charles. Um, 
Well, as we've talked about in our last two shows, the uh, UD action in San Diego that involved the uh, alleged witness who was to come in speaking on behalf as a custodian of U.S. Bank, who ultimately turned out to be a real estate broker listing the subject property, it, uh, it really went to the heart of a lot of questions that people reach out and ask me to investigate, uh, and they've done so many, many times over the years, asking, is there any way for you to pinpoint um, any connection between some of these shady uh, shenanigans going on between the mortgage real estate brokers, I should say yeah, real estate agents, who are listing the subject properties who seem to be interfering and hounding around my property and, and causing all kinds of you know problems, whatever it might be. And, and the thing is, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to prove. It's a very hard uh, fact pattern to find the evidence when it comes to under-the-table transactions or illegal kickbacks and whatnot. Um, you know, without the aid of uh, federal law enforcement or things of that nature to get involved in going after some of this information, they're just it's just really, really a difficult nut to crack. However, uh, I started digging in because this, this issue was really starting to bother me, especially what I had just seen in that UD action. And lo and behold, I found some information that I think is really revealing, and I think it plays into uh, a fact pattern across the board in many, many cases, not not just uh, uh, countrywide trusts, as this evidence I'm about to speak about deals with countrywide and, and the uh, $8.5 billion settlement back in 2011, uh, where Bank of America entered into this uh, MBS. It was one of the largest settlements, and most listeners who have been following uh, a lot of this foreclosure fraud or whatnot since, since day one are familiar and heard about this settlement. Well, anyway... Uh, there were 530 countrywide trusts uh, that were the subject of the big uh, settlement agreement uh, entered into. And I started poking around and I started looking at the actual settlement agreement itself, which is right in public view, uh, filed with the SEC. And as I started scrolling down, uh, at the very bottom of the settlement agreement, there's what's called Exhibit E. And in that exhibit, they lay out the incentive fees that they agreed to pay the subservicers, and there's a long laundry list of subservicers, so all, all the usual suspects really are involved. Um, but they spell out the, the schedule of incentive fees. So, for example, they would pay uh, a 0.75% a of the unpaid principal balance if they did a payment plan or a workout, for example, on the loan or they would pay the, the subservicer 1.5% of the unpaid balance for a modification. And there's a whole list of what those fees are. And what was really interesting, if you look into the, the little tiny footnotes beneath that, there is the, the, the language that specifically talks about referral fees coming from mortgage brokers negotiating with the subservicers. So, for example... In footnote number three, it says the short sale incentive fee will be reduced if the servicer is able to collect a referral or transaction management fee from the listing broker. 
I, and immediately I thought, oh, what, you know, what is this all about? Because that on its face uh, appears to be uh, an illegal uh, kickback fee. And it says the same type of language in the next footnote below that, dealing with an REO incentive fee. And what they're essentially telling the investors here is that you may not have to pay the subservicer uh, all of these fees of one and a half, whatever they might be, if that subservicer negotiates a much higher referral fee with that real estate broker. Now, the problem here is not only does that appear to be a violation on its on, on the face of the RESPA laws and, and illegal fees and kickbacks, but it clearly shows that there would be an incentive for these subservicers to interfere in a modification, so to speak. And when I say that, I use an example. If you had a foreclosed property in California, and I'll just use a rounded number of a million-dollar property, if that real estate broker is able to get that listing and list that for a 6% real estate fee, they're looking at a potential $60,000 commission on that property, of which they have that uh, that amount of money to split or share or kick back to the subservicer. So if in that situation, if the subservicer were to say, I'm going to modify this loan, the subservicer would essentially get a $15,000 fee for modifying that loan. But I, it, it, it sets the table for what you can I can clearly see is a discussion between the subservicer saying, to the mortgage bro or the real estate broker, look, if you sell this and you have sixty thousand dollars, I only get paid fifteen thousand to modify. Are you willing to top that? And and that's the gray area that we're entering into. And I believe that this is clear evidence of potential interference uh, between the real estate uh, agents and brokers on these properties colluding with the subservicers um, behind the scenes. And so if people uh, have been denied modifications, if they've been put through, uh, you know, all kinds of headaches, jumping through hoops, and ultimately getting denied modifications when it would clearly seem feasible, uh, and then the house goes to the foreclosure block, like in, in the situation with a countrywide trust. Now we have some evidence here to say, well, there's there's a good reason possibly for why that was denied or your modification, and there's a reason to maybe get your foot in the door to demand discovery because here they're clearly discussing illegal fees and kickbacks. So uh, this is the first time that I'm able to, at least I have, I've been able to see the evidence of this, and it's right there for for folks to uh, to see with their own eyes, but it, it, it's buried in the very fine print of the SEC filings. Yeah, that's very uh, compelling stuff, what you've uncovered here. And, I mean, one aspect of this is as, the chain of title arguments themselves uh, become to some extent more attenuated because of, of being uh, further marginalized by continuing uh, unfavorable rulings, for instance, here in California. 
not to say that uh, non-judicial foreclosure is a dead letter. That's absolutely uh, – um, or that challenging non-judicial foreclosures is a dead letter. That's absolutely not the case. There are still cases moving forward. There are still cases going to trial. Uh, it is becoming, and I think accurately would be described as a difficult area to litigate in. On the other hand, uh, when you've got these kinds of machinations involved, and it is, I think, uh, at the heart of this is what you've already implied, which is pools of money. Yeah, you know, as you get these, uh, in some cases, even multi-million dollar properties in California. And by the way, to have a multi-million dollar property in California does not mean you live in some great estate. If it particularly it's uh, in the uh, Silicon Valley area, you could be talking about a, a somewhat modest uh, ranch home uh, in some areas, even a cottage that's still worth more than a million. So the numbers can be pretty crazy here in California. And yeah, as you're stating, Bill, when you have, uh, for one thing, a, a real estate commission at issue, uh, oftentimes at the closing in these cases, then that's a huge incentive for money to be passed around. And as you also indicate, yes, proving this is a major issue. Uh, you know, even making out the specific allegations on it in a way which will survive demure would be an issue. And I, I, I do believe the way to at least, at least uh, in a kind of preliminary way, get around these issues is to use discovery. And in the discovery process, kind of investigative uh, details that you're able to put into play, uh, Bill, discovery process would help hone and clarify and then uh, ultimately expose a lot of what's going on here. This is a complex issue, and uh, it's absolutely worth following up further on. Do you have anything else to add on that? Well, I, I just have to kind of laugh when I think of whatever attorney it was that drafted that settlement agreement because <laughs> to sit there and, and actually state that they're they're engaging in fees uh, with the mortgage brokers is astounding to put that in writing. And I think that's, uh, at least I would interpret that as a, an admission that this is what they were doing and, and, and that should uh, hopefully allow certain individuals in their cases to proceed and at least get to the discovery point, hopefully. But again, getting back to you know, the difficulty improving this kind of thing, uh, you know, here, here's an opportunity where you can see the evidence. But on the other side of it, if you're buying a foreclosed home as an investor, so, so to speak, and you sit down at the closing table and you, and you sign your HUD-1 agreement or whatever, you're not going to see any of these fees on the HUD-1 statement. They have no idea that you know, these fees are being paid and, there's, and no one can identify any harm. Who's being harmed here uh, because you can't, you can't figure out or find out that this is going on. So I think on the, on the one end, the harm really is that uh, homeowners are being, uh, uh, they're comp they're, I don't know if you would call it tortious interference, whatever it might be, by the real estate brokers who are, com who are competing against the homeowner trying to work out their loans. 
in the, in, and they're doing that and, and impeding upon their ability to work something out because the money and the incentive is there to uh, pay the real estate brokers, or at least they're paying the subservicers a higher fee to, than to modify. Right. It, all, it also creates perverse incentives in terms of taking properties to sale. And exactly. Then, in those cases, the home, in those cases, the homeowner doesn't doesn't even have uh, the property at the end of the day. Right. Uh, so the other uh, uh, big topic uh, we're addressing today uh, relates to an important case out of Massachusetts, and that case. Uh, that case is Thompson versus Chase, and it's a uh, a recent decision out of the First Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the U.S. you know United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. It's the equivalent circuit in the Northeast, equivalent to the Ninth Circuit here out west, and at the Thompson matter. That was decided back in February of this year. Uh, the court reversed and remanded the case, so that's a big deal. Uh, the lower court, uh, in looking at objections to the way the judicial foreclosure process uh, procedure essentially statutory framework in Massachusetts in assessing how that was being complied with by Chase. Because remember here, we're talking Massachusetts. So Massachusetts is strictly a judicial foreclosure state. However, in this case, Thompson was suing Chase over the completed judicial foreclosure and over the illegitimacy of that. Uh, and objecting to the legal procedure that was allowed to take place and by which the judicial court procedure by which the judicial foreclosure ultimately did take place. So the lower court found for Chase and the appellate court first uh, circuit court of appeals reversed for Thompson. And they did so basically uh, taking a strict construction of how the judicial foreclosure process has to be followed in Massachusetts. And in a world where, again, I will use California as the counterexample, in a world where, particularly non-judicially, uh, the institutional players here are able to get away with a lot and get a lot of uh, traction uh, running around rules, finessing the rules, sometimes openly violating the rules, still getting foreclosures completed in a way that ends up being ratified later by a judicial challenge. Uh, here we have the federal uh, appellate uh, panel in New England insisting that Massachusetts, anyway, follow its proper judicial procedure and, of course, one of the big rationales for that is that you're being divested of your home in these uh, lawsuits. And this is also 
an example of how you, you can and do sometimes get more protection in a judicial foreclosure state. Uh, there is a burden on the plaintiff suing you in those states to take your property. There is a burden on them that does not exist for the institutional players in non-judicial foreclosure states like California. They, on paper, have to come forward with probative evidence, confirmed evidence, documented evidence, that they are able to finesse that in many cases and still foreclose, of course, is a travesty and one of the reasons for this show. Uh, so what's your what's your take on all this, Bill? I know you have some interesting insights. Well, I, what I take, there's, there's a lot of takes from this uh, ruling in my view, but I really um, appreciate the analysis by the court where they're really saying here, and I'll just read a paragraph um, uh, from the lower body of the ruling where the court says, after all, the bank is the one writing the notice and has ample opportunity and expertise to make it entirely accurate. So, so essentially what they're talking about in this case is some of the language is being deceptive in the uh, mortgage itself and in the acceleration clauses and so on and so on and so forth. And so the court here is saying that in exchange, both accuracy and avoidance of potential deception are conditions of the validity of the foreclosure lifting from the Thompsons the need to show prejudice. Now, I think that analysis applies to virtually every foreclosure case and, and documents being produced across the country. But now here in the case, this is a chase case where they claim to have acquired the loan from Washington Mutual. And I think uh, one of the flaws in this ruling is that the court does make the presumption that uh, Chase did acquire this WAMU loan when there was really no proof of that. Um, but in these Chase-WAMU cases especially, we've talked about this many times, in order for uh, Chase to get to the, to the uh, point of proving its standing and judicial or non-judicial states to foreclose, they have got to execute an assignment of the mortgage or deed of trust as the owner-beneficiary or mortgagee. And they have to do that through the FDIC when those documents on their face can, are, are materially false. And what the court is saying here, and I love it, is that the burden is lifted from the Thompsons to show how they've been prejudiced. And that, that the... Uh, court says in here that it, the, the way of old school thinking of attorneys in these cases is that, you know, even if a mistake is made, even if the language is um, ultimately found to be inaccurate, for example, uh, no harm, no foul, because the homeowner, the borrower can't prove how they've been harmed or prejudiced through such an error mistake. And that's what they've been getting away with since day one. And if you lift that burden, off of the, the party like they did in this case and say, no, the burden is on you, bank, to make sure that the documents you're putting forth are entirely accurate. And if you're putting forth misleading information or information that's deceptive, that's on you. And ultimately, that could be deemed a number of things. It could be unclean hands. It could be fatal to your case, whatever it might be. But 
the homeowner doesn't have to prove that they've been harmed by that because essentially, you know, why are these parties resorting to this kind of behavior to begin with? Why are there material misrepresentations being put into these documents? Well, we know it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's it's to manufacture an illusion of of standing to to get to their ultimate goal of judgment. And if that burden is removed, and that's been that's like the, you know, uh, the Chinese wall here or whatever. I mean, homeowners have a really hard time. And, and even I have attorneys and people calling me all the time saying, I need to figure out how to address the harm here to my client or to the homeowner. How can we get past that burden and prove harm? And uh, and so I think this is really a, an interesting analysis, um, removing that burden. And I think that really puts the onus on, on the bank to put forth the accurate information. And at the end of the day, I, I believe in many of these cases they can't uh, they can't they can't meet that burden. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a lot of good uh, input on this. I, I think what's striking about the harm element, because yes, uh, prove, proving out damages, which of course harm is is essentially another word for damages. That's an essential element. Of, of any tort, it's an essential element of any contract-based claim. Uh, in effect, the the failure to find damages in a given case means the case should should fail. So, where plaintiffs here, the borrowers, like they would be in a non-judicial foreclosure state, typically where they can't establish damages, where they can't establish harm, then theoretically they're their cause of action will fail, even if it's otherwise proved out. I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that this court is rightly focusing on a kind of strict scrutiny, which is a legal term in other areas. I won't get into the, the narrow definition of strict scrutiny. I'm, I'm actually using it in a, in a kind of broader, more colloquial sense right now. By strict scrutiny here, I mean the court is holding Chase to uh, what amounts to a strict legal construction of the statutory framework that they operate in. That yes, all the T's need to be crossed, all the I's need to be dotted for their foreclosure to be found valid. And where those uh, issues are are ripe as they are here, this court is certainly saying, this appellate panel is saying they will be held to strict scrutiny. And the the issue of damages, I mean, clearly uh, defendants in these situations or plaintiffs as here, clearly they are, are being divested of their house. They're, they're being ultimately evicted uh, at the end of the day. And let's put it another way, even if they're never evicted, they're subject to eviction after a successful, for the, for the institutional plaintiff in a, in a judicial foreclosure case, where there's a successful judicial foreclosure, the former borrowers divested of their house, divested of their property, clearly that's compelling harm. Uh, and in the non-judicial foreclosure state, where there's not even 
a court addressed ruling regarding their ability, that is, the borrower's ability to fight the uh, the foreclosure where they have to actually go into court to try to articulate and put forward their rights to slow down the foreclosure train or ultimately have the the foreclosure institutional players held to account for violating various laws and violating specifically the non-judicial foreclosure statutory framework here in California. And the this whole issue of damages, I think it's greatly finessed, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure states and even in the judicial foreclosure states, to the extent that judges will look at these cases and say, well, we know you owe somebody, and whoever that is, uh, you should have paid up, you need to pay up. And so they almost create uh, a scenario where the institutional players who purport to be uh, the, the holders in interest, even when the paperwork isn't right, even when the assignments are sketchy, or openly fraudulent in some cases. Still, these cases get signed off on. This did not happen here, though, in the Thompson case, and uh, Bill and I are glad to report on that. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you again very much, Bill, and Neil will be back next week. I will be back thereafter. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.